sorry for all of you who are listening. Um, it is just going to be a solo show with me, your co-host, um, Rob Bermudez, and our lovely guest today, Danny Haifong. Uh, Ryan should be back next week, but today it's just going to be, it's just going to be the two of us, but we're excited to talk, uh, about a lot of things, especially foreign policy. There's no shortage of things to talk about over the last couple weeks. Um, but first, let me introduce Danny properly. He is a journalist at the Black Agenda Report. You can also read his work on his Patreon at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. And he also hosts the show Cold War Brew on Colin. So make sure you listen to Danny and get news from him. And Danny, I'm sure I missed a few other things. So why don't you tell the people where else they can find your work? Sure. So you can also find my work on Substack, where I primarily just share my streams from the Left Lens YouTube channel, which you should also subscribe to uh, that I host. And my Substack is chroniclesofhaifong.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter, too, at Spirit of Ho, and follow something that I co-edit, a platform I co-edit, Friends of Socialist China at socialistchina.org. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Friends of Socialist China. I think it was a couple months back, there was a great panel, a webinar actually, um, that I was able to uh, to listen to the whole thing. It was great, specifically talking about the strengthening relationships between China and Latin America. So I definitely want to touch on that in a little bit. But first, I just kind of want to get this out of the way. Um, we want to acknowledge the shootings that happened in Texas uh, killing over a dozen students, and I believe one or two teachers have, have been confirmed dead as well. So uh, more tragic violence. And and Danny, I'd like to get your thoughts on it, because the United States is not the only country in the world that has guns, and yet we seem to be the only country that continually has this this deepening problem. So in your estimation, what is leading to this uh, accelerated rate of, of mass shootings and, and this this fear of people even being able to go to places like schools that were once considered safe and now are making them feel very vulnerable? Well, that's a really good question, a really big question. I, I think that there are many components to it. I think that a huge component, though, is that the United States is by far and away the military hegemon in the world. And what that has meant is that there has been a dual militarization of everything. And this includes, right, because oftentimes what what gets disconnected is how the United States' just obsession with militarism has an impact at home. We don't really talk about it like that. Oftentimes how... The U.S. media, the political class, how they talk about mass shootings is a completely disconnected from U.S. foreign policy. But I think we have to look at how the culture in the United States has been so militarized. And this isn't to mention also the foundations of the United States and violence historically and how this intensified militarization of everything domestically and abroad in terms of how the U.S. does policy at home and abroad also has come at a time of immense crisis, immense alienation. I mean, we're talking about a a moment over the last 40 years where everything has been decimated in the public sector, right? The the, uh, austerity cuts, the constant uh, 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 leveling of an immense amount of debt, the economic kind of plundering of working class wealth, whatever existed, 
of working class wealth, uh, both at home and, and abroad. I think all of these, I think all of these factors must be taken into consideration because the reason why there is such a huge influence uh, and confluence of, of guns and gun culture in the U.S. is first the origins of the United States in a kind of gun culture, right? the Second Amendment being rooted in the expropriation of indigenous land and the repression of slave rebellions. Uh, but also with this militarization of everything, has come a privatization of everything and this glut of military culture and this commodification of militarization, which exists to the point where you do have uh, military weaponry flooding uh, communities all across this country, people buying two, three, four uh, kinds of these weapons that are meant for killing. And uh, really, I think what we are seeing and what these mass shootings indicate, because of the majority, most of, I mean, the uh, the numbers of them over the last 40 years are staggering. And I think it should come as no surprise that they have increased over this period because the level of alienation has increased, the level of militarization has increased, the privatization and commodification of uh, milita- the military the mil- and military culture uh, and violence has only increased. And it hits upon all the vulnerabilities of this society. And, and I think that uh, we are seeing really the decay of the United States uh, front and center to the point where uh, this violence has has turned inward in in a lot of ways, and uh, it shouldn't be so surprising. But I think what's surprising about it is that it always feels out of nowhere when the system, the system that we live under, the system of capitalism, this imperialist system. That provides so many outlets and barriers to avoid asking the real questions about this. Like, what is actually happening here? All we get is scapegoating, right? Scapegoating mental illness, uh, bad apples, right? Uh, uh, sometimes there's just scapegoating of certain political tendencies, but none of it, it, it really gets to the root of the problem, which is that the United States is predicated upon this violence and that there are a lot of forces in the ruling class profiting off of this violence. Yeah, I think one of the the things that's so sinister and and so sad too is there's almost this callousness. Um, Just the everyday American sees, oh, another mass shooting. Which which school was it this time? Oh, that was the wrong one. And and I think in part that comes from a a society that doesn't value, uh, (laughs) definitely they don't value workers other than anything is, is being able to extract surplus value from them. But when you think about like, Imagine you hear this horrible news and we're constantly inundated it with with violence on the news, violence when you're scrolling Twitter and and it just it hits you. And it's not like, well, you have a week to take off work and kind of process this and grieve. We're we're a nation that we don't really get the the space to grieve. We don't get the paid time off. And so oftentimes I feel like we we've learned to just kind of live with this in, in a certain way in which we don't say the importance of giving not just the the survivors, but a a country should be grieving that this has happened again and again. And I think that another aspect that leads to this this sort of callousness, and I believe it was even Pete Buttigieg was saying, you know, I when I carried an assault rifle, when I was serving in the military, 
I didn't never wanted to see that used in my in schools in my own homeland. And it, it, it kind of makes you think like, so what are you saying? That it's it's okay for us to be using these truly awful weapons in the Middle East and in, in the global south to to impose our will, that's fine. And when we hear about Palestinian children and Syrian children, Afghani children, that sort of violence has not been met with the same level of attention or care as, well, you know, we had another school shooting and every loss of life, in my opinion, is is very, very important. Every loss of life is a tragedy. It just seems very, I don't know, the American centricism of we only care we have these big uproars when it's happening in our communities. But when we are paying for the world's largest military budget to do this exact same thing in another country, and the result is not the blood of American children, but children in some other country, the the, the outrage doesn't seem to be there. And so I, I, I wonder if just constantly hearing about reading in the news, you know, uh, a school was drone striked killing 11 Afghani children. Like, has has this kind of warped our ability to see human life as human life definitely and and i also think that the united states has at its very roots a historical tendency to demarcate which lives matter and which lives don't and that often has a class basis and it also has a basis in race and racism i mean that's that's been the reality for so long even in this situation right uh, we had two mass shootings in uh, like a 10, 10 day span or so. And uh, we see just how different the media and the, uh, the politicians, the political class have reacted right now in Uvalde with this mass shooting, there's been a huge uproar about gun control by the Democrats. But when it was the, uh, when it was at the top shooting and you had six black people killed it, the, the outrage wasn't the same. And so I think we, we can just see it just front and center, even in, in the last couple of weeks, just how this tendency to value human lives differently is just so indicative, even just on the home front. But when we're, we're thinking abroad, it, it, I think it just goes without question that if the organizing principle of U.S. foreign policy is dehumanization and the use of violence in order to gain economic and political and military domination around the world, that that is going to have a huge impact. The more and more that that's, it's going to have a huge impact in the United States and in politics and social life in the United States, the more and more that the U.S. becomes dependent upon militarism and the u.s has only become more and more dependent upon militarism to meet all of its objectives political social military economic all right the the militarism has become the principal solution even many aspects of privatization economic policy have a huge uh, military component to them in the sense that hand in hand what usually happens when the u.s tries to gain an economic foothold through the through its international financial system and what usually comes with it are policies like sanctions policies like uh, coups and waging 
proxy wars and uh, various other kinds of military operations in order to lay the terrain for the United States to uh, be able to take advantage of its own kind of economic medicine. So, so it goes without question that that kind of reliance upon violent militarism would have an impact on how the overall society views violence and how uh, when the alienation of society, when the social isolation of a society, when the overall uh, contours and skeleton of the society begins to crumble, that there will be forces that arise which... uh, conduct this kind of violence right here on the home front. I mean, there there are millions of people in the United States ready for a so-called civil war. I mean, we have a lot of people ready to enact some kind of violence for their, uh, for their aims. And, uh, and we can also see in our own police forces, the same kind of phenomena where police departments have only become more militarized and their influence over politics has only become stronger and stronger over the past uh, several decades. And that has its own kind of impact as well. I mean, these are all conditioning experiences and that's not even to factor in the fact that the corporate media, that the mass media, the, 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 the Hollywood media, they all glorify violence, the, the worst kinds of violence. They glorify torture, they glorify mass murder, and they have an obsession with making a hero out of killers and out of uh, militaris- militarists. And all of this lays a foundation for a, a side that will inevitably have more individuals seeking to resolve even individual interpersonal conflicts with, with violence. And this isn't even to factor in also the fact that the United States government and these gun you know, manufacturers, weapons manufacturers, they all have a hand in all of this. They're, you do not sell these kind of weapons. You do not sponsor and lobby and, and have this kind of influence over politics without the intention of something like this happening. You don't sell gun. The, the whole self-defense narrative when you're selling AR-15s is ridiculous. That's a weapon of war. When when they're used abroad, they're not used for self-defense. They're used to enact force and enact violence. So the same goes for if they're being distributed in this kind of way um, right here in the United States, that they are meant to uh, to do what they were produced to do, and, and so. Uh, that in that way we can see uh, the very materialist, I think, um, f- background to why these mass shootings occur. Yeah, I, I want to move over to foreign policy, but I just one last kind of thing I wanted to pick your brain about is we kind of, as a country, are grown up being taught that the soldiers that quote fight for our freedom they're idolized. We're taught that the police are there to help; they're there to help people. And I think what something that, that happened with this particular mass shooting is seeing the reporting, uh, the just complete police stenography at times from, from these uh, media outlets 
immediately saying whatever the police tell them. And then after the fact, finding out actually the police did try to engage him. Well, they didn't really. They kind of just let him go inside. And well, there were four police officers and then it was seven. And then it was well, actually there was 14 or 19 police officers. And oh, they were trying to stop the killer. Actually, they were putting parents in handcuffs who were trying to go in after they were begging these these officers to do what they thought police officers do which is put your life on the line to help others and we see very clearly that the police had no uh no real intention of endangering themselves to to save these children and i think it kind of is starting to to reveal the the illusion that the police are not there to protect people they're there to protect property they're there to uphold capitalism they're there right now I know there's an NRA convention and there's plenty of armed police officers protecting the the people that are going inside those conventions more than they were willing to protect children who were helpless inside of a school. So what role do you think moving forward, um, reimagining police or, or just complete abolition would actually get us to a place where we would feel safe? Because I think as it's currently constructed, the police are not under any... <laughs> and they, they have no pressure to do the right thing to quote help others they're very capable of beating up unarmed protesters but we've seen time and time again when there is someone a single lone shooter with an assault rifle they seem to act like well there's nothing we can do here yeah i, I was thinking about the image in buffalo when the buffalo shooting happened and then of course when this happened i was thinking about the image of how the police in Buffalo treated an older gentleman who was literally just walking and marching, pushing him down, basically cracking his his head open, and how then they treated the white supremacist who shot up the Buffalo grocery store and, and killed six black people. I mean, that, uh, to me, I think that just shows the role of the police front and center and then when Uvalde happened and all of the video footage and all of the commentary, independent, of course, of the corporate media, because the corporate media is a stenographer for, for the police as it is the military, but all of this independent footage that came out that showed, well, yes, all of these police, uh, these police that were armed in so-called SWAT gear were not just doing nothing, not just watching this happened, but they were also preventing parents from being able to go in and do something about it themselves when they obviously were seeing the armed guardians of so the society supposedly uh, literally uh, sit and watch as, as the massacre was happening. And so I, I think that it is one of these really stark examples of the function of the police. You know, Lenin said that the state under capitalism can become almost a force in and of itself above society, that it stands above the society. And when you see the police behave like this, it's a stark reminder that this is, this is just a fact that the only way to wrestle back some kind of control over safety for vulnerable and oppressed communities is through some kind of community control leading into the abolition of the need for any kind of so-called public safety in the first place, right? That communities need to be the ones who, who not only decide who uh, patrols their streets supposedly, but also need to be able to be the ones 
that determine how that policing is supposed to look like and the benefit to the benefit of the community. That's the only way toward any kind of destruction of this is for uh, the police as a force of the state standing above society needs to be completely reorganized and and first and foremost it, it needs to be dismantled as it currently exists because as you said it is a force that is uh, there to protect private property protect capital uh, if what happened in Uvalde happened in uh, uh, any kind of political institution where people with real power in this society reside and we would have seen a much different response. I mean, look at just uh, how the response to even something like January 6th, that, that, you know, some call it insurrection, but that, that kind of uh, conflict, right. That uh, uh, storming of the Capitol building, the reaction to it, was to come down and say, we need more Capitol Police, we need to do more. And, uh, you know, there was a heavy-handed response because who was being threatened there? It was politicians, it was uh, the state. But when it comes to ordinary people, there is this neglect, this callousness, this almost uh, negligence of the very their very existence, um, this constant forgetting this constant washing over and even the political theater over gun control versus no gun control it all takes it all takes away the politics and the humanity of this question right it it takes away the substance in place of really what are just electoral uh, machinations and, and electoral maneuvers um and so i think that the only way forward when it comes to policing and, and trying to fix this problem of the police terrorizing oppressed communities and working class communities while protecting capital is to uh, fight for some kind of community control leading toward this idea of abolition in a, in a revolutionary uh, situation. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And, and I think a common thread, this whole segue us nicely into foreign policy is the lack of accountability there is for police when they do, not even make mistakes when they do these atrocious acts and they get caught on camera. There's very rarely any real accountability, much like how we see the United States and their allies seem to kind of be these global bullies that try to force, whether with economic weapons or um, physical weapons like bombs and, and guns like that, to push their will on the rest of the international community. And there is no real accountability. And I think a great, uh, a great, Parallel kind of is the um, the killing of uh, Shireen Abu Akleh. What I'm hoping I pronounced her name correctly um, in 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 Palestine, and the ability for Israel to say, "Well, we're going to just investigate ourselves," and we found no no wrongdoing. And even CNN says um, that it, it looks very much like this um, American journalist uh, you know, was oftentimes referred to as the voice of Palestine was killed by Israeli forces. And we don't see the, the calls to say no more sending billions of dollars every year to Israel as they continue to not only uh, occupy and commit apartheid and genocide in Palestine, but also to even uh, attacking 
uh, the press, which is something that's not the first time they've done this. If, even dating back to about a year ago, Israel had bombed um, the Associated Press offices mm-hmm. and there was no accountability. And so we, we often see when it comes to the police, when it comes to the United States and their allies, accountability is something that that requires, I guess, a, a dominant power to be able to step in because at this as it's currently seen, there is no no one holding America accountable for the countless war crimes and the, the atrocities they're committing across the globe. So what do you think are ways in which we can start seeing some actual accountability for uh, U.S. foreign policy? Hmm. Well, I, I think that the way, and this may seem kind of out of the box, because I think the easy answer to this, although very complicated, is to find a way to place pressure in the global uh, arena to organize uh, people to pressure their their you know their governments to hold the United States accountable uh, for war crimes right through the international bodies that exist. So the complicated thing about that is that the United States dominates a lot of these international institutions, and the United States doesn't really participate in many of the treaties, many of the uh, agreements and, and uh, many of the stipulations of international law that, uh, uh, that exist at the moment. And so I think in, in the United States where the accountability has to come from, of course, is through some kind of anti-war movement bringing pressure to bear on the United States government to stop doing what it's doing, whether it's ceasing the uh, billions, $4 billion per year nearly of aid to Israel, or whether it's just this massive military budget that needs to be cut by at least 50% if there's going to be any kind of transformation in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, but I think in the larger sense where the accountability is going to have to come from is through uh, building support for and joining in on this larger trend that's happening around the world of uh, building multiple poles or what's called the multipolar world where countries abroad – nations abroad, many of them with similar histories, some kind of relationship uh, to U.S. foreign policy that is antagonistic in a lot of ways, uh, targets of U.S. foreign policy that these countries are supported and and ultimately given uh, the necessary solidarity for this effort to bear fruit as we build our own movement for, for peace. And so I think those two things have to happen together for there to be any kind of acceleration in the international situation for the United States to actually be held accountable. Now, it, the complicated thing is that these international institutions, of course, uh, have the United States as such a heavy-handed influence that it is almost hard to imagine the international the, these international bodies as they exist doing any such a thing. The United States is never going to remove itself from the, national, from the UN Security Council, for, for example. It's not going to remove itself from its undue influence over the international monetary system and financial system. It's not going to do that. So the ways in which it's held accountable are going to have to come from new structures, new pressures that are brought to bear on it. And I think 
the best hope for that is this dual approach of building an anti-imperialist movement, anti-war movement on the home front while supporting and being in solidarity with efforts to respect international law, to build a, an economic, political, and uh, security uh, alliance that uh, that respects the self-determination and respects the stipulations of international law, uh, which is which is happening. And it's seen in formations like the Groups of Friends for in Defense of the UN Charter. It's seen in the ways in which China and Russia, I guess that's controversial to say now, how they've occupied the UN, National, uh, the UN Security Council, their actions, and the ways in which uh, other even smaller countries have been leading efforts to build economic alliances, diplomatic alliances, and security alliances that uh, help protect them from the effects of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, so, so really, I think it's like this old strategy, what Mao used to call uh, kind of surrounding the, the, the paper tiger of imperialism. I think that that mentality has to be updated in the modern sense that the United States is becoming more isolated, but its hegemonic position means that uh, there needs to be more proactive uh, kind of activities and uh, an opposition built on the home front that can sustain the efforts of other countries for for survival, for the respect of international law and self-determination, and for the development of a world that isn't just dominated by the United States. That's the only way that accountability will ever come, is if the United States is no longer able to call itself a hegemon and no longer able to enforce its will and throw around its will uh, wherever it sees fit and whenever it sees fit. Yeah, and, and some news just came out uh, either early today or late yesterday that China and Russia... Uh, just vetoed new UN sanctions on North Korea, um, and and it's I think, although the the loss of lives in Ukraine is is a terrible thing, I do think it's been really interesting um, since the the conflict in Ukraine has started that we kind of seen the United States almost try to isolate Russia and and try to enact these sanctions and weaken them, and they want the proxy war in Ukraine to bleed the Russians dry and, and sap morality. But what we've seen is the Russian ruble is stronger now than before uh, the invasion. And we're also seeing Russia being kind of pushed closer towards China, would you say? And it, it looks like this is kind of the, the early beginnings of, of seeing the unipolar world becoming a multipolar world. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, this, is, this is very much your specialty and, and not necessarily mine, but are we seeing maybe some initial short-sightedness in how the United States has tried to insert itself into this, uh, the situation in Ukraine? Is it going to end up being something we look back in 10, 20 years, even 100 years from now saying this is what kind of was the, the acceleration that led to the decline of the U.S. empire? Well, I think it definitely is a part, definitely partly what you're saying is, is true. I, I, you know, I always like to clarify that in my estimation, the development of a partnership between Russia and China is, I think, both a response to the aggression that they've both been facing by the United States and the Western imperialist system. That's definitely true. But sometimes I think that's emphasized to the extent that these two countries wouldn't have a partnership otherwise, which I think, uh, despite the complicated histories during the uh, Soviet era, 
both of these countries have very good reasons to be close, uh, just geographically, economically, um, and uh, just regionally for the sake of their own uh, interests on all fronts. So, so I think it's a mixture of that, right? A mixture of uh, building a real alliance to strengthen both the national interests of both countries as well as their overall geopolitical interests, right? To build this multipolar world, it makes it only makes sense that these two countries, which have a deep in need for a certain kind of development, right? Russia being underdeveloped in terms of certain parts of its industry, certain parts of its infrastructure that was dismantled in the aftermath of the Soviet Union, making Russia, despite people's claims of Russia being imperialist, Russia's economy is quite, is actually uh, for where it was during the Soviet era, quite small, right? Its GDP is smaller than that of South Korea, which no one would call, although, you know, no one would call an imperialist power. uh, No one would call South Korea that. Um, The, uh, Russia is called that, but the, the the fact of the matter is, is that Russia's economy has a lot of needs that China can provide, and China's economy has a lot of needs that Russia can provide in the way of resources um, that China needs to be able to power its economy, energy, um, and the like. I mean, in 2014, there was a massive $400 billion gas exchange that was uh, agreed upon, which um, which is all about right ensuring that these economic interests are met but the fact is is that the US's aggression has had this accelerating effect on the i think the political relationship right this this solidarity that's being built between Russia and China politically has accelerated on the questions especially of color revolutions sanctions right that both China and Russia are facing these kind of policies together and that their joint visions, right? Because they have two different, slightly different visions for integration, but with a lot of commonalities in terms of bringing together Eurasia, bringing together Asia with Europe and being able to integrate the entire Eurasian landmass economically. They both have that to a certain extent with slight variations, it all, it makes sense that the U.S.'s attempt to contain, if not outright overthrow, both of these countries' political systems would bring them even closer together, right? I think I think the important thing is, is that in the last couple of years, these two countries have held high-level talks, both on security, especially on this question of color revolutions and sanctions, because these two policies have been absolutely devastating, especially to Russia, but even to China, right? Although China has been able to maneuver around a lot of sanctions, uh, the fact that uh, China has had to lose out on parts of the European market and and also the American market with its uh, uh, huge high-tech industry uh, through these sanctions on Huawei, for example, the biggest uh, 5G provider uh, in the world, uh, that uh, that has only made it all the more necessary for these two rising powers to come together and work out how do uh, how do their visions for integration, for economic development, uh, remain successful and remain progressing amid what is a really suicidal uh, policy on the part of the United States, a, a real counterproductive one, and so. 
Russia and China's alliance is very important. And then uh, these two countries have now been are now viewed by much of the global south, much of the world in Central Asia and Africa and Latin America and um, in, in other places as uh, the prime example of what it means for uh, two countries that have long histories of underdevelopment to come together and try to forge a path out of that without while building up the strength to be able to withstand uh, the the pressures and the constant onslaught of of US imperialism yeah do you think that uh, the situation in ukraine is is kind of revealing some of maybe US strategies and game plans for when they inevitably will turn uh towards taiwan as the next kind of proxy war and and just um you know, I think one of the the bigger things when Russia was removed from SWIFT, uh, I vaguely remember, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that China had been working on uh, an alternative financial system to bypass the, the necessity for SWIFT and that that was kind of one of the things that was getting accelerated and, and we might be seeing sooner rather than later based on this uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Do you think that... Uh, China, based on their economic strength and, and their ties with so many other countries in the world, do you think they would have a different game plan or a better strategy for, for pushing back against uh, American imperialism and especially trying to, you know, the talks of going to World War III over Taiwan that just are filled, filling opinion uh, pieces for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and left and right? It just, these people seem so... So not only bloodthirsty, but just ready for, for war, it seems like it's only a matter of time before uh, the powers that be in the United States actually try to make a move against China. Yeah, well, what's interesting about the Taiwan question, uh, because I do think that China is definitely aware of the U.S.'s calculations here and how they are maneuvering. I mean, how could it be avoided, as you said, in the Times and in all of these corporate media outlets, you see the publications, Wall Street Journal, you see the publications uh, where this is being heavily discussed. You even saw Meet the Press uh, just a week and a half ago uh, where they had the Center for New American Security go over their war game simulations over what the United States would do in the event of a war with China over Taiwan. And you know, the Center for New American Security is really, it's a think tank apparatchik of the Defense Department. It's biggest funder outside of Northrop Grumman Corporation, a military con, the, one of the top five military contractors is the Department of Defense. So what you had was meet the press, have a Defense Department think tank come in and go over the outlines of a simulation of what that war would be like so openly and brazenly to the point where you can't help but understand and think that the U.S. at some point has plans to try to enact this policy. Now, the big problem here is the miscalculation part of this, because unlike Ukraine, which has under international law this status as a sovereign country after the fall of the Soviet Union, right? it has this status as a sovereign country, Taiwan doesn't. And that's where... I think the miscalculation comes in and how the any kind of attempt by the United States to try a similar action like it has with Ukraine, with Taiwan, uh, would prove to be, I think, even more disastrous 
than what has happened with Ukraine. Because at the very least, no matter no matter the blowback and the damage that the U.S. policy in Ukraine in this proxy war with Russia has caused economically, militarily, all the damage right of prolonging this conflict through military expenditure, at the very least, the United States can say, maybe not to astute observers like us and probably a lot of your viewers, but can say to the general public, Ukraine's a sovereign country. We can do whatever we want if it agrees to it. This, that cannot be said about Taiwan, where there is a one-China policy that dates all the way back to the joint communique of 1972, the Nixon visit, uh, the Nixon uh, uh, meeting with China, which outlined that Taiwan is part of China and that the U.S. wouldn't interfere in this way in the future. And a lot of that is kind of being torn up in front of our faces, even while the Biden administration tries to toe the line, right? Right after, he's done it three times. But this last time, which would happen over the last a, a day or two, uh, this this last instance was, such, I think, such a, a shock, right, to even his own administration that there was an immediate walk back of his comments that the U.S. has a military commitment and would, uh, and would intervene uh, under the correct circumstances. And I think that... This uh, policy that the U.S. has toward Taiwan and in this new Cold War in China has, I think, even uh, the possibility of creating further shockwaves and problems than what already exists with the Ukraine crisis because Taiwan isn't a sovereign country, because the United States has been openly similar to Ukraine in this sense, but uh, it's almost even more problematic because uh, Taiwan has this history as being uh, a part of China, maybe a different vision of what China should be, because for many years, all the way up until the last half de- to uh, five to ten years, has seen itself as a republic of China, as the rightful kind of political leadership of China, but still part of what is known as China, as the nation. And so to encroach right upon that, upon uh, the, the sovereignty of China is, I think, even a, a more brazen and, and also more dangerous provocation, which would cause, I think, an even heavier, and I think that's why you have war game simulations and all of this, because it would cause an even heavier-handed response um, overall, just globally, both in in its ramifications militarily and economically. Because with Russia, um, you know, Russia announced a a special military operation with a specific purpose within a country that had gone through a coup that had essentially been split already because of the way that the coup government had been treating its eastern provinces in the Donbass region. They're, They're... was already a conflict afoot and Ukraine's sovereignty was already not just, it was in question, but it was still stable. We're ta- and so with Taiwan, we're talking about something completely different, but yet the United States is trying to treat it the same because its overall strategy can't really change. There's no flexibility in it. Taiwan just has to be this chip like it has been for many, many, many decades. It has to be this chip, this launching pad and 
an over a broader war with China. And so really this a lot of this is like opportunistic. It's trying to use the Ukraine crisis as just kind of this political justification for what could happen with Taiwan because the US for the longest time has hoped to make Taiwan its kind of satellite for a broader war to contain and eventually bring about the downfall of China. And, and that is is very dangerous and, and people, I think people should take this very seriously given that you have almost across the board the military foreign policy establishment making the arrangements. Like they're making the arrangements in their head. They're making the arrangements um, in preparations for this. So it only goes to say that there is a possibility of this, even if it seems absolutely out of the question. A, a lot of people thought the Ukraine crisis was out of the question for so long, despite the fact that the U.S. was laying the foundations for it. Right? None of us could have predicted it. I think uh, we shouldn't make the same mistake when it comes to uh, the way that the U.S. Is, is treating Taiwan, despite the fact that the ramifications would be uh, far, I think, far more egregious and far more, far more dangerous. Would you mind going into a little detail about the the situation in the Solomon Islands and how it pertains to the situation um, with Taiwan and also the kind of the role that AUKUS might play with any sort of conflict moving forward? Right. So the Solomon Islands, this very small country, it's thousands of kilometers from Australia, but many people associate it as having um, some kind of proximity to Australia, mainly because the... Uh, Australian military had occupied this all in a mind, still does occupy with hundreds of troops, but uh, had occupied with an even heavier handed force uh, from 2003 to 2013. Uh, this country has a long history of colonialism and uh, what, what ended up happening was its government had agreed upon after years of what was a color revolution style kind of uprising happening within the country, a lot of which targeted Chinese businesses over the last uh, several years, uh, Solomon Islands entered into a security agreement with uh, China. The security agreement is mostly cooperation. It's mostly strategic. It doesn't outline anything in the ways of uh, you know developing combat or any kind of other capabilities. It really is just about, well, uh, we are here to help you defend yourselves um, if if that's necessary. And so that brought on all kinds of uh, hysterical responses from uh, the uh, imperialists, right? The, especially Australia, which its media was openly saying that Australia should invade the Solomon Islands should China even think about a uh, a military base, for example, in the region. So uh, there has been a lot of interference by Washington itself. Wherever you hear Australia, you should always just think Washington because essentially Australia is a satellite government, uh, especially when it comes to military and foreign policy of Washington, D.C. Uh, a lot of the problems that Solomon Islands has faced politically in its relationship with China has been around Washington's consternation over its decision in 2019 to recognize 
Beijing recognized mainland China, People's Republic of China, as the rightful political um, uh, 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 ruling government of China, right? The, the uh, entity that represents the state of China over Taipei, over Taiwan, and announced at the same time that it would join the Belt and Road Initiative. So the U.S. has poured millions of dollars into uh, 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 political forces in the Solomon Islands to try to build a conservative and outright violent force within the country to try to destabilize it, to try to make it ungovernable. And that's what led to the security agreement that exists now, because uh, just like what happened in a country like Myanmar, right? A lot of Chinese businesses have been targeted by the color revolution that is happening there. And a lot of state-owned industries, which have ties with uh, China's economy, have been targeted. Uh, The same has happened in the Solomon Islands, a lot of which has happened without any news sort of following it. And so the security agreement makes a lot of sense. These two countries have deep economic ties. The Solomon Islands um, has faced immense political instability, a lot of which has been exported to it um, in order to cause internal instability. And so Solomon Islands has asked for assistance with this, has asked for ways to shore up its own domestic stability so that it can move forward with economic development. And that has caused... Um, so much uh, uh, political hysteria on the part of Australia and and the United States. And AUKUS, of course, plays a big role in this because it is AUKUS which has cemented this proxy relationship between the United States and Australia, where Australia acts basically as a military arm of the United States in this agreement um, only shores that up and uh, ultimately sort of lays the rudiments for a Pacific NATO. For um, And this includes the Quad and other kind of security arrangements that have been made by the United, led by the United States, where it is attempting to create a military alliance and political alliances similar to, to NATO in the European theater. So it's trying to emulate that in the Pacific, and it's all to try to contain China. And the Solomon Islands is caught up in this, this very small country, very poor country, uh, which is trying to get itself out of its uh, situation, trying to assert some sovereignty. It is being targeted um, because of its uh, tendency to align itself with, with China and with uh, what China has to offer, which is economic development, the possibility for upgrading infrastructure and the possibility for uh, alleviating the poverty and some of the historical ills that had faced the country for generations. Yeah, you you brought up the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, which I'd love for you to go into more detail, uh, especially since you mentioned Solomon Islands, not a particularly wealthy country. And it kind of reminds me, uh, my dad's from Nicaragua, and I know that the Sandinista Front, the the current leadership in Nicaragua, has formally um, announced that they they view uh, Taiwan as part of China, and and I know that there are deepening ties when it comes to diplomacy, but also economic ties. And I would love to hear 
um, your thoughts on on just briefly for for our listeners who might not know, uh, could you explain the Belt and Road Initiative and, and explain how it's been going so far in Latin America? I know there was uh, I forget who it was, like a State Department spokesperson was was asking the Senate like why. Why is it that Latin America, they're not taking money? We have these programs for them, and they're instead choosing to work with China. So maybe uh, you can fill fill our listeners in on, on what your thoughts on that might be. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, first off, just a little background. So the, the, uh, of the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative was uh, – be, it began in 2013. It was announced in 2013. It was announced uh, as a project of the new political administration in China led by Xi Jinping. So announced as a, essentially a global vision of economic integration that would essentially connect China and the rest of the world together, right? As much of the world as possible, but really uh, much of the, the overall Eurasian region uh, include and including Africa and Latin America and even you know Europe a lot of European countries have joined and uh, as well as the United States which was invited but uh, has has never taken the invitation so essentially it's a it's a way to build both bridges right land uh, 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 that's uh, that's the road part and then the maritime belt uh, uh, trade routes and networks and interconnectivity by sea and uh, uh, through uh, through the oceans to essentially uh, provide a deepening infrastructure and economic development across the world, essentially to bring everybody up to a similar level of economic development. And uh, it has really jumped off right it has now is more than 140 signatories countries that have signed on there are more than 30 international organizations in it there's more than 8 trillion invested 8 trillion US dollars invested in trade and infrastructure to this date there's more than 2600 projects that are either completed or underway and uh, this spans many achievements uh, across the world, from Pakistan's first metro system to Laos' first high-speed rail, both of which happened in the last couple of years. So uh, in Latin America, though, uh, there is growing a growing partnership between uh, China and Latin America. Uh, there's the uh, CELAC Forum, uh, which is a forum held with Caribbean countries, Latin, countries Latin America, and China to uh, increase the level of economic activity between these countries, and, and this has spanned uh, from you know developing, of course, transportation infrastructure, roads and bridges. Nicaragua, I know, probably wants to and and will likely try to complete the canal project, which would be extremely important in enhancing Nicaragua's ability to have access to the global market. And of course, we've seen in countries like Bolivia and Venezuela, right, be able to take advantage of China's high-tech industry to expand things like internet service and, uh, you know, uh, things like 5G technology, which 
uh, would be just out of the question uh, of access for, for these countries. And so you've seen just more and more countries. You saw with uh, Nicaragua's recent election, right, the affirmation of not just joining the Belt and Road, but also recognizing China, the People's Republic of China, as the rightful uh, representative of the country uh, over Taiwan. And, and I think that that, that this all signals that this partnership between Latin America and China through the Belt and Road Initiative is only uh, set to deepen. And uh, it's a huge commitment on the part of China because uh, uh, these two regions, these two countries, these two ultimately civilizations, because Latin America is made up of so many uh, different nations and peoples. China is very similar in that way with just a different history. They they see themselves as building a kind of similar model of integration and unity economically and politically, which is meant to overcome the historic uh, uh, underdevelopment that has been uh, a part of uh, these uh, two uh, journey, these two civilizations' journeys for for centuries, and um, you know, and and I think it spells a lot of hope for uh, Latin America in particular because Latin America is to a larger degree than China. China is able to fight this off to some degree, but Latin America is seen as what Joe Biden say, right? The front yard of the United States. It's like the backyard some years. And this, this, in this administration, it's the front yard, but then nonetheless, it's still the, uh, it's still the Monroe doctrine. And so, you know, you have 21 of 33 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean have signed up for the Belt and Road Initiative. So that's the vast majority. You, you have 150 billion plus dollars in loans that have been uh, agreed upon between governments in Latin America and China. And all of this is being used to build up the infrastructure, the healthcare infrastructure, the housing infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, education infrastructure, all of it, and especially the manufacturing, the economic infrastructure, the, the infrastructure that really boosts trade and investment, um, and, and energy as well, right? Developing the energy economy so that China can benefit through Latin America's deep uh, and and very valuable and precious energy resources, as well as Latin America can really benefit from what it can receive in exchange, which is both infrastructure investment as well as just uh, advance in high value commodities and goods, which uh, may not be available to uh, Latin America otherwise. Yeah, it really does seem like the you know the the Monroe Doctrine, which is just such horrible piece of imperialist policy well that's our back door or the front front uh you know that's in our backyard or our front yard i think the reason they switched it was because they wanted to include africa as well and say well africa's our backyard and america latin america's our front yard uh but we're seeing now too um one of the things that the united states has, has been able to inflict so much pain and suffering in latin america has oftentimes been due to sanctions and, and embargoes. We've seen it in Cuba. We've seen it in Venezuela. Uh, the Renicar Act in, I think, was early la- or mid to late last year, uh, increased sanctions on Nicaragua. 
so we're definitely seeing kind of a, a desperate United States trying to cling on to power. But it was just reported that the U.S. is to ease some of their energy sanctions on Venezuela as they as the United States becomes desperate for oil. Um, and we've also seen uh, very recently um, the ex-president of Brazil, Lula da Silva, had mentioned that he wants a Latin American currency. Um, I, I think Gaddafi, before the uh, you know NATO intervention and in, in his uh, his death, subsequent death, had been talking about like a, a Pan-African currency as well. What would be the importance of Latin America being able to establish their own currency to to kind of bypass the U.S. dollar? Well, I mean, it would be incredibly important. It, it it's likely a project that will take a whole lot of time, just especially since the supply chains and the the ways in which the dollar really dominates the overall world economy uh, remains true. I mean, we have a similar situation with Russia, right? Under so much fire, there are the workings of a potentially groundbreaking monetary system underway, which would potentially bring a basket of currencies um, to bear uh, uh, maybe attached to the Chinese yuan, which would give Russia and, of course, all participating countries in Eurasia uh, and, and the possibility of bypassing the dollar. But even that is likely uh, some time away. So just the idea, though, of it, right, just asserting the idea and beginning to try to act on that idea is, I think, uh, incredibly important because it means that there is a thirst and a hunger for sort of real economic sovereignty and that there is the political courage and will to assert that self-determination right now. And so should, and I think that there's a likelihood barring some kind of disaster politically, interference politically from the United States, uh, Lula da Silva was likely to win the election, uh, the next election in Brazil. And should that happen, the Workers' Party come back into power uh, with all of the other gains that Latin America has made, Nicaragua, Bolivia coming back from its 2019 coup and uh, having the movement uh, towards socialism win again the following year. I mean, with all of these gains that Latin America has made, it's quite likely that something like this could go from discussion and idea uh, uh, realm to implementation and or at least planning, right? The planning phase. And I think with that, I mean, you mentioned Gaddafi, you mentioned Muammar Gaddafi, you mentioned Libya. I think with that possibility would come, of course, a heavy-handed response uh, by the United States. And I think this is what makes Latin America's partnership with China so important is that that partnership has the capacity should it continue to grow and it's and it's also right there's a i mean the i mean trade between latin america and china economic investment is is massive between the 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 two regions between china and latin america but nonetheless because the us has viewed it as its front yard because the us has this long history of meddling as well as a certain economic supremacy over latin america it is no easy task for even the sovereign countries of Latin America to transition and move toward China uh, completely. But that relationship is something that they're going to have to lean on 
if something like an independent monetary system is going to work because you need major economies to recognize it and you need uh, real friends that will back you up should there be a, a response to this kind of a plan and this kind of policy. And so it'll be very interesting to see how this goes, but we know how it ended with Libya, where Libya, unfortunately, right, was one of the last bastions of the African liberation movement to uh, hold uh, real state power, because a lot of the countries uh, in, in on the African continent that had succeeded uh, with independence, uh, they had either uh, had nominal independence or had their governments that were trying to assert uh, a material independence, real uh, independence from uh, the former colonial powers, uh, they were brutally overthrown, dismembered, and interfered upon uh, by the imperialists. And so Libya at that time, in 2011, was actually relatively isolated. You had a lot of African countries vote uh, against it as the U.S.-NATO alliance was uh, gearing up and uh, engaged already in a brutal war that, of course, killed so many people and eventually overthrew and assassinated uh, the Libyan leadership, the Jamaharia and, and Muammar Gaddafi, and that completely obliterated this dream of the dinar, right, the Libyan currency, a gold currency from arising that would unite the African continent along with an African united military, because that was another part of this plan, which was to have African countries unite independently in a military basis so that they would not become subjected, these countries would not become subjected to what is happening now, which is the uh, U.S.-Africa Command, which is spreading across the continent, which has increased its presence uh, 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 in a dizzying pace since the overthrow of Libya because uh, there isn't this example, there isn't this leadership that exists now. And so Latin America can maybe, hope, hopefully, the progressive forces, left forces in Latin America can... can see that, learn from it, and understand that there is going to be, and I don't think there's probably any reservations about this, there's going to be a heavy-handed response the more that forces like Lula da Silva, the Workers' Party, and progressive forces in Latin America talk about independent uh, monetary systems and, and uh, sovereignty from U.S. neocolonial economic and, and military domination. Well, Danny, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I really appreciated your insight and, and your uh, just everything you've brought to the table. I do want to leave you with one last question, which is, do you think globally we are starting to see the rise of socialism on a global level? Um, we're seeing it more in Latin America. We're seeing it in uh, Asia as well. And do you think that in our lifetimes, we're going to see a truly multipolar world? I think, I mean, yes to both questions. And what's interesting about, I think, this question is, and I always find this very interesting. Uh, just the way that socialism is developing now, I think, is a lot more difficult to understand because in the period of the first Cold War, there was such a heavy emphasis on ideology. And this isn't to say that socialists shouldn't emphasize ideology because they should, because ideology is very important. However, what has been driving socialism, I think, in the 21st century is the 
conception that Karl Marx had of what socialism, how socialism would develop on a materialist basis economically and how it would depend upon the capacity of the productive forces to be at such a stage where uh, 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 those pursuing socialism would really be able to throw off the shackles of scarcity and want. And because uh, until you do that, there's always going to be some kind of class struggle. And so what is very interesting about this moment is that you have, you have, you have the center, I think of, the development of socialism in China, just by its sheer size, economic growth, as well as the ways in which it has been able to, and I think this might be controversial to some, but actually follow Are you there, Danny? Can you hear me? I think we might have lost you. Hmm. Danny, if you can hear me, we cannot hear you right now. Um, I don't know if you want to try. There would not. Oh, there be... we go. Sorry, Danny. Oh, sorry. I think I just lost you for the last, like, maybe 10, 15 seconds. Oh, sorry. You know, I actually think I got a call, and that might have interrupted my mic. It's a really annoying thing, but I will try to back up then where where was i oh you were you were talking about uh about marx and and the ability to take the shackles off and and focus on uh materialism yeah so you know i think uh, for china even a lot of countries that have gone through real prolet i mean you know cuba and vietnam and laos like all these countries and then you factor in countries latin america which have had their own kind of models of socialism based in a form of proletarian working class revolution uh but in their own way i think all of them are moving in this direction toward understanding and i think china's model right fidel castro called china's model one of the most important if not the most important example of socialism in the world I think all of them are moving in this direction with the understanding that countries that have this historic relationship to poverty, to super exploitation, to colonialism and neocolonialism need to have a certain productive base to be able to not only move their revolutions forward, but also just be able to develop the economic capacity to move beyond want to uh, be able to satisfy right, uh, higher forms of human and economic development. And I think the China is at the center of this because China has gone along this path of, of attempting to achieve both in very precarious circumstances, especially in the last 30 years, right, in this end of history moment. China has said, okay, we need to develop the product of forces. The moment is here where we we have an opportunity to develop industry, to develop high technology, uh, and we need to walk along a path where we both where we balance that with the fact that China that China as a country has been or as a civilization has been uh, one of the least developed, one of the poorest countries in the world for so much of of the last couple of centuries. So walking that path, I think, has taught a lot of countries, Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, they're all looking at China and saying, China has walked that path. 
And now we have to figure out how do we get out of this resource extractive kind of neo-colonial relationship with the world economy toward a more highly developed uh, productive forces that can both meet the needs of ordinary people as well as move beyond meeting the needs to be able to sustain a society that can uh, advance into a new era and and tackle some of the challenges that these countries face environmentally, that they face uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know, just various problems in in, this, in, in all sectors of society. And, and I think that we are seeing the development of socialism in this way. And so it's interesting because during the first Cold War, a lot of people's conception of socialism was, you know, the proletarian revolution and the complete... Uh, socialization of everything and and we're just going to have a total planned economy uh, all across the board and you fi- we found out with the Soviet Union as an example through all the pressures of imperialism as well as some internal problems that planning everything can't occur in in a world situation of uh, uh, of instability as well as the fact that there are certain sectors of society that you just can't plan around, that eventually you have to unleash certain forces uh, to be able to uh, conduct certain economic activity, especially in the, uh, uh, the consumer goods realm, to be able to spur economic activity and development and bring those profits back into the society. And so China has walked that path. And now we see Cuba, right? A lot of people have criticized Cuba for supposedly privatizing parts of its economy. But all of these countries, Vietnam has uh, the Dao Moi plan, right? Similar to uh, the uh, move toward reform and opening up in China, right? They both almost happened at the sa- a very similar period, the 1970s, 1980s. Both, uh, like all, I think there's this movement towards socialism that is attempting to be economically viable and throw off poverty as uh, an existence, as some as a problem that exists in and of itself, not just this relationship, this class relationship, but throw off poverty as a phenomenon. That is, I think, where socialism is moving toward, and the multipolar world is occurring at the same time, I think, as a broader global trend that really is a response to all of the problems that, as I said, the end of history period brought forth to the world. That the U.S.'s unrestrained capacity to assert its hegemony after the fall of the Soviet Union was an unmitigated disaster for the entire planet at all levels everywhere that the U.S. and its attendant institutions extended their tentacles. And so the multipolar world has emerged where even a country when it was much weaker even, right, around 2008, Russia started to assert uh, its uh, desire for more sovereignty to interject in this kind of multipolar governance model. China, of course, uh, is there. And then Global South countries, uh, not just the socialist countries, but even just uh, uh, countries that are are moving in a progressive direction. They are 
attempting to build new alliances that will uh, free themselves from the extreme limitations and downright uh, uh, insufferable conditions of of a unipolar system, of a U.S.-led dominated international system. And, And I think these two things are going hand in hand because it is this economic problem of poverty, of underdevelopment that has been sponsored by this unipolar world, which is creating a lot of the impetus for this. And that's not even to mention the fact that U.S. militarism as a threat to all of humanity and climate change and all these problems are also spurring this motivation and incentive to further strengthen these trends. Well, thank you again so much, Danny. Uh, for all our listeners, make sure you check him out on Twitter at Spirit of Ho. Uh, make sure you're checking out his Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Make sure you follow all his work for the Black Agenda Report, including his, pod, his uh, YouTube show, The Left Lens. And uh, Danny, thank you again so much. Oh, and his call-in show as well, Cold War Brew. Thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate being on, and I hope that, and I wish uh, for Ryan to get better and for speedy recovery. Absolutely, and we'd love to have you back on in the future to talk more about uh, foreign policy is just so, I feel like, under-discussed, especially within the American left, And, and I think a lot of these deeply permeating issues within our country kind of start uh, outside of our borders, and like you mentioned earlier, that's imperialism faced inwards that we're we're grappling with right now, leading to so many of these issues. So it's always great to have great minds like you uh, break things down so that we can all have a better understanding of everything. I appreciate that, and and yes, let's let's reconnect again soon. All right, sounds good. Thank you again, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back next week. Hopefully Ryan's feeling better and recovered from COVID-19 and he will be able to join us as well. But this has been another episode of Unruly with Ryan and Rob, and we'll talk to you all next week.